All right, I think we'll start. Good to see you. We're uh, nearing uh, the end of our study. Just some concluding thoughts. Uh, let me remind you of a couple of things. The author is writing to Jewish believers somewhere about uh, in the 60s. They are struggling with the, uh, the, the reality that Jesus and all that he did rendered the old covenant no longer operative. It is not that it's bad or evil. It's just no longer functioning. It's been replaced by the new covenant. And I hope none of that is new to uh, any of you. You could probably explain it in a nice thought paper. But that's kind of the theme. And therefore, Jesus is superior, superior to the spirit of revelation, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to the law, superior high priest, those major things that he's developed. In chapters 12 and 13, in effect, answer the question, so what? If that is true, how should it affect my life? But remember, he's writing to Jews who are now believers, understand Jesus as the Messiah, and they're repackaging everything about their old faith being replaced by the new faith. They're still repackaging that. That is very difficult. And if you've ever known a person who is a Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ, that even 2019 is hard. And unfortunately, as it happens almost every week, we kind of left right in the middle of, of something. He had said, I'm in verse uh, 15 of chapter 12, book of Hebrews. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Continuing, verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And I will talk about that in just a minute. So he's concluding his little section before he looks at the comparison of the two covenants in the next section about not relying on the grace of God, not allowing bitterness to spring up, which causes defilement. And then he uses an example. And the example is out of the Old Testament. And and as you remember, this was written to Jews in the first century, and so their standard is the Old Testament. That's why he keeps using the Old Testament. So here he cites Esau, who did not rely on the grace of God, who did allow bitterness to rise up in his life, and who was thereby defiled. Now, do you you all remember Esau? Enough about, he's the brother of Jacob, you know, the the son of of Isaac and so on. Jacob, it would be Jacob who would be the covenant son. But do you remember some of the things about Esau? What, what, What one or two things really stand out about Esau? Was the first well, firstborn. Well, he was the firstborn, and God rejected him. He was a hunter. He was very uh, into the world and, and, and was the hunter and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, really didn't treat him to seem to be much interested in, in, in the word. What was an indication of his lack of devotion and sincerity to the Lord? Do you remember? Yeah. When he brought uh, meat in, 
to its father without preparing it or just Okay, uh, yeah, that will occur just a little later. The very first thing, he had been out hunting all day. And Jacob prepared a bowl of chili. I made that up. <laughs> of stew. And it was called, in the Bible, it was called red stew. But it, it was uh, his favorite uh, stew. He was famished. He was hungry. Do you remember what he did for that bowl of stew? Sold his birthright. He was the firstborn. He's the firstborn of his father, Isaac. The birthright... By, by tradition as well as by inheritance rights of the tribes of Israel, he would be the one to inherit. He sold it all for a bowl of soup. Now, it must have been really good soup. But I mean, and I'm you know, being a little facetious there. So the author, the author is talking about it in this context. His, he was only concerned, this is Esau, he was only concerned about one thing satisfying his immediate appetite. Now, it, in this case, it was, you know, food. But, I mean, it can be anything. He, all he, was, he was just interested in living for the moment. I'm hungry. I'm so hungry. I'll give you my birthright. Just give me a bowl of soup, which is just extraordinary. And, I mean, it's almost in the real meaning of that overused word. It's almost unbelievable. But the author is using this as a, as a man who did not rely on the grace of God. And because he sold for fleshly gratification, immediate gratification, his birthright, the author says he represents a person like that. And then he tried to undo it. He tried to undo it, but he was rejected because... He sought it with tears. The it is repentant. In, in other words, there is, I will go through the motions of repentance, but there isn't real sorrow in my heart for my sin. That's what the author is getting at. So you see this man, Esau, who was in a tremendously privileged position, but for immediate fleshly gratification, sold it all. And then tried, you know, tears, but not genuine sorrow for sin. And so the author says, he's an example of what I'm talking about. And it's, I mean, that's the tragedy of Esau. I mean, it, it, it's one of the great tragedies of Esau's life. And then a whole bunch of other things that unfold in his life that we don't need to deal with. Any qu- uh, question? Yeah. Wasn't Jacob deceptive? Oh, yes. Now, we're not, we're not in any way elevating Jacob's character here. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is, how does that trump deception? Well, <laughs> um, I guess in one sense it wasn't. But God said, I've chosen Jacob. I've rejected Esau. What? did Jacob have first? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are. Listen, Jacob. Jacob's name, and and that's what Jim's referring to. Jacob uh, actually, his hand had a hold of Esau's uh, ankle, his his leg, and he's therefore Jacob. The name Jacob Yahweh literally means heel catcher, manipulator. Jacob will always be the man who tries to get God's blessing his way. 
When does God change Jacob? When he wrestled. Genesis 32. When Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And then God, God breaks him at that point. That's Jacob the broken man. And his name, God changes his name, remember? From Jacob to Israel. He limps the rest of his and life. And the rest of his life. He limps. Uh, he is a broken man. And I think God saw in Jacob, I know what Jacob will become. I know what Esau will become. I choose Jacob. Guys, don't you see when you study the Bible, God delights, God delights in choosing and developing broken people. He doesn't choose. He doesn't choose. I mean, look at them. Look at all these heroes of the of the faith. You look at that list that we looked at in chapter eleven. So many of them. I mean, if you looked at them, you looked at their lives as a teenager or early young adult, you would say, "I would never choose that person. I would never choose that person to be some." I mean, look at Paul. Would you have chosen Paul? He, you know, he's killing Christians. He's after the church. Would you choose him? But God did. And look what happened to Paul. God changed him. God transformed him. And you know the story of Paul. That Jacob's the same way. And really, in a way, look at Abraham. God chose Abraham. He moved out of Mesopotamia. But look at the things Abraham did. <clears throat> you know, he, he agreed with Sarah to take Hagar and impregnate her. And, and look at all the problems that created. The Middle Eastern conflict has its origins right there. And then he goes down to Egypt. Remember what he did? He lies to Pharaoh says, this isn't my wife. This is my sister. And he allowed her to be taken into the court of Pharaoh, where if, if, he, if God didn't intervene, she would have had sexual intercourse with the Pharaoh. She would have become impure. She could not have been the mother of the covenant son. But God still, he intervened. He protected that. And he kept developing Abraham. Look at David. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I'm saying is God delights. That's what grace is all about. God delights in choosing rebels that he can develop into individuals, men and women, who will make a significant difference for him. God delights in doing that. I mean, I I agree with you. I, I preached a message on Jacob. I would never have chosen Jacob. He was duplicitous, he was deceitful, he was cunning, he was conniving, he always did. When Frank Sinatra sang My Way, remember that song out of the, whenever he made that? That's Jacob. I did it my way. Until God broke him. And so, I mean, it's that's the way God, and, I mean, I think every, if, any one of, if every one of us could talk a little bit about our lives, we would say the same thing. Oh, it's true for my life. So, I mean, that's the way God does things. He takes broken, rebellious people and makes something out of their lives. So he gets the glory. I mean, look at Paul. Who gets the glory for Paul? It certainly isn't Paul. He was headed in totally the wrong direction. And so God, rather, the author of Hebrews chooses, and it's just interesting, he chooses him, but he chooses Esau, who accepted momentary fleshly gratification for something eternally significant. He gave it up. 
That shows he had no regard, really, he had no regard for the things of God. He really didn't. Whereas Jacob did, but the problem with Jacob until God breaks him is he's always getting God's way, getting God's blessing his way. Okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it my way. And God says, well, all right, I'll let you go through this for a little bit, but you're going to ruin things, you're going to destroy things. And that's what he did along the way. And then, I mean, it, there's so many things you could say about Jacob. But he remains the channel of blessing. Now, what the author does after this council of the preceding verses, and that's where I want to go to this little chart. This is just a copy of a PowerPoint slide I made a number of years ago. But it's hard. It's hard if you don't have something like this to hopefully. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it. I'm going to read verse 18 through verse 24. He is comparing and contrasting two covenants. The old covenant and the new covenant. Reminding the readers of this book, the initial readers and now you and me as well, that we are a part, if we put our faith in Christ, we are not a part of the old covenant. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message should be spoken of, where they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be ruined, quoting from Exodus 19. Indeed, so terrifying was sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. All right, what is he talking about in those verses? Mount Sinai. When God is giving Moses the law, and that the, the entire mountain trembled, there were earthquakes, there was doom, doom and gloom all around. And so the author is saying, that's Mount Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion. <laughs> Mount Zion, Zion, as you know, is an Old Testament name for Jerusalem. That's just a common use of Zion is Jerusalem, but it's it's the new Jerusalem. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, he just he used a whole lot of descriptive phrases, but he's comparing and contrasting two mountains, two covenants. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Old covenant, new covenant. And the author is saying, you, you are a part of the new covenant. Where there are angels, where there, and this is speaking of the heavens, where there'll be angels in festival, in worshipful, festive, joyous, spontaneous, exhilarating worship. The church of the firstborn, all of those who have, through all the centuries, have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're there. Where the living God is there. Where the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That would be a reference to all the Old Testament saints. And most importantly of all, there's Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant through his blood, which was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So what is the author doing? 
He's reminding them of their position, their identity, who they are. You are part of the new covenant. Remember, these the first readers of this book were Jews who had come to faith in Christ, who had understood that he is the Messiah. And so their struggle is to pull back into the old traditions and old practices and circumcision. And the author is saying, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? You were part of the new order. And he uses all these descriptive phrases to characterize the new covenant, the new order. Why does he do why does he make this comparison? Because he's saying, here's where you used to be, here's where you are. What in the world do you want to go back here for? What, I mean, what do you want to do that for? This is where you used to be. Before Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, this is your life. It's Mount Sinai. It's the law. It's all of the rituals and practices of how you could walk with God through the ceremonial law. That's been fulfilled. This is the new covenant. Here's who you are. This is your new identity. What in the world do you want to go back here for? And so he's just stating in a, in a very succinct way, stating what he's doing, developing throughout the book. Here's who you are now. Why would you want to go back and have anything to do with this old covenant? Okay, Fred. I have been doing some extra reading. I had an insight on this one. It's very aspect of things. That much as the serpent kept to eating in the garden, Satan, various other means, is tempting the new Christians with the this was what you used to, this was so good, you need to go back to this, and that was the division that, that Paul spoke against, right. the, the, um, the false teachings and things that Paul spoke up, uh, so strongly about in, in his business. It's a satanic influence, Satan, to maintain his control on earth and to maintain That's right. chaos in the, in the believers. That's right. That's right. No, that, that, that's very, that is very insightful because that's exactly right. That Satan's strategy is always deceit and clever, clever duplicity. Clever, put doubts, put add something to the grace. I just, I get a little devotional every morning in my email in my uh, inbox from Swindoll, and anybody can sign up for it if you want to. But these last all. Uh, six or seven uh, morning little devotionals, a couple paragraphs, has been on grace. I mean, it's just a, it's a tremendous reminder, and he brings that out. The one thing Satan wants to do, even for the believer, is diminish the grace of God. And the last two uh, sessions have been on liberty. What is What does freedom in Christ really mean? Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son, S-O-N, if the Son makes you free, if I make you free, you'll be free indeed. What did Jesus mean by that? What does Christian liberty and Christian freedom mean? And as Swindoll says, the only way you can really understand that is if you understand grace. And so what the author is saying here, here, here is who you are now. 
This, this, all of this characterizes you now and what your future is going to look like, where you're headed, heaven, heavenly Jerusalem. This, this is who you are. Satan would love for you to deny that or add to that this stuff and put these two together. And what the author of Hebrews has been saying, if you try to put these two together, you're saying the work of Jesus wasn't sufficient. There's more that has to be done. And the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is, no, Jesus did it all. This is fulfilled. Now cross it out. It doesn't function anymore. And this is, and this is how Swindoll's uh, tweaking it, this becomes the birth then of legalism. Where, you know, people add to the gospel and say that you must do this and you must do this and you must do this. Then God will be pleased with you. And men, if you ever hear a pastor say, now, put your faith in Jesus Christ, but then you also have to do this and this and this. Please get up from that church, leave it, and never go back to that church. Because that pastor has added to the work of Christ. And in effect, that pastor is saying, the work of Jesus isn't enough. You have to do some more. So, and you have the ability to do some more. And then God will say, good, you're finally in. Now, I, what I just said is supposed to be a little humorous, but nobody got it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just a... It, well, anyway, yes. So, so the author is making this final appeal, contrasting the two covenants, leading into a final warning. This is the last and final warning of the, the book of Hebrews. And, and this little chart that I gave you way, way back at the beginning. The, the, the believer who defies the word of God, who refuses to hear and heed it. And so it's just one simple, not very long, warning See that you do not refuse him. That word refuse is hard. It's a hard word to translate. That you not refuse him. You could translate that deprecate him, disparage him. Those two words are not as easy. That's probably why they didn't translate it that way. Who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they disparaged, refused, deprecated him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Of whom is he speaking when he's talking of the they? Israel, right? Ancient Israel. He said, if, 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 God, if they did not escape God's disciplinary judgment, when he warned them on earth from Mount Sinai and through the prophets and many others, why do you think you'll escape if you did the same thing? Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Remember? Earthquake. The earth shook at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, this is a quote from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. You probably didn't even know that Haggai was in the Bible, but it's an Old Testament minor prophet. It's one of the prophets after they came back from the exile. But he quotes from that. Yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. And that phrase, yet once more, indicates removal of things that are shaken. 
that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The author is talking about the end of time, when God's going to shake the earth, remake it, recreate it, as he purges it from all sin. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Fire is always a metaphor in the Old Testament and the New of purging and cleansing. And so the author is just one final reminder, one final reminder. You're, God shook the earth at Sinai. God is going to shake the earth at the end of time, quoting from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. But you and I don't have to worry about that because we have inherited a kingdom. It's the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. So what should your response be to that grand truth? God is going to judge the world. He's going to shake the world at the end of time. But you and I don't have to worry about that. Because we're citizens of a kingdom that can't be shaken. Obviously the kingdom of God. Therefore, what's the only response to that? Acceptable worship. Reverential. All-filled. Worship. Because we know this. God is a consuming fire. He disciplines. He judges. He purges. But we know, we know who we are. This is the appeal. We know who we are, and this is how we live. So you and I should, and this is paraphrasing the, the, the point of the author, you and I know what the future is. We know what the future holds. And as the old Baptist preacher used to say, we know who holds the future. We know what the future holds, and we know who holds the future. Therefore, the promises that God has made to us cause us to respond in reverential all-filled, acceptable worship to the Lord. We're not afraid of him anymore. We love him, we worship him, we walk with him. And that's all the difference in the world. All right. Yes, sir. Fred. Twenty-five. Uh, you cannot refuse him. That I mean, that says that you really have to actively rebel against God and, and reject him to, to not not see the light. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in yeah, in, in in a way, it's a it's a conscious willful, deprecating, and disparaging of what God has said. Can a believer do that? Yes. But God, God is not going to let that believer do that very long. The unbeliever does that all the time. That's the lifestyle of the unbeliever, whether they even think about it in those terms. You know, I, uh, this, today is my daughter-in-law's father's birthday name is Pete, lives in England, that's where they live. And so uh, I always write him on his birthday. He's um, his late 70s, he's not well, he has really acute diabetes, tremendous pain in his legs and feet, he can hardly walk. And so 
I told Peggy I'm going to email Pete today, and I prayed. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to say to this guy? Because I say the same thing every year. But I just said to him, you know, I, just the typical things, you know, I hope you have a really nice day and all of that, and mentioned a few things that we've been doing and, and over all that. And I said, you know, I really want to wish you a blessed day. I hope it'll be a real special day for you, Pete. And I said, Pete, I'm going to say it to you again. Please consider the claims of Christ. Because it's the most important decision in life. Because, Peter, I do not want you to go into eternity without Jesus. Now, that, that's bold. But, I mean, this may be the last, because, you know, he's, he's had two strokes in the last oh, 16, 17 months. So, I mean, he could just have another stroke and that'd be it. You know, it just he's at that point in life and so on. So I just said, honey, this is what I'm going to do. I keep checking in my inbox. I still haven't heard from him, so I may not. But I just think, you know, I know what the truth is. And if I had a cure for cancer, I wouldn't hide it. If I had a cure for his strokes, I wouldn't hide it. I have a cure for his problem, which is Jesus. I mean, you know, when I say I have a cure, you know what I mean by that. And for me not to just challenge him again. Maybe the last time I'll be able to, to email him. But I'm saying that because that's what the author is doing here. Focus, camp, stress, give emphasis to the eternal truth. And for, for goodness sake, don't go back. Go forward. Don't keep going back into the old Judaism. Go forward and persevere and endure. Hang in there. And treat the Word of God as the Word of God. And the, this has been his theme. Don't drift from it. Don't doubt it. Don't become dull to it. Don't despise it. And don't defy it. It is the key to life. As the author says earlier in, in the book, it's chapter 4, the Word of God is like a two-edged sword. The Word of God is the most important aspect of your life. I had I may have told you this, I had a lady in a in a church that I sometimes am involved with. She is she's a Chinese lady and her aunt is a devout Buddhist. She has pancreatic cancer. She's in hospice care. She has only a couple of weeks to live. And so she emailed me, she said, What do I say to my aunt? <laughs> you know <laughs> Well, go through the seven arguments why Buddha is wrong in all his visions. That's 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 not going to work. So I just said, you know, I really, I didn't exactly know what to say to her. I just said to her, Mrs. Lou, what I would do if I were you, you know your aunt, I don't know her, I don't know anything about her, but I would choose a couple of key passages of Scripture that focus on Jesus and read them to her. Let the power of the Word of God speak to her heart. Because, I mean, she is dying, she's extremely sick, she's in hospice care. In these last moments, days of her life, do the one thing, humanly speaking, that has the chance of being successful. Do the one thing that God's Spirit can use to bring change in her heart and conversion. It's His Word. So read John 3.16, read John 6.47. I mean, read those passages that focus on her fundamental need in life. And she's either going to accept it or she's going to reject it. But if you have that opportunity, so 
I, you know, I honest, that was it doesn't happen too often. I didn't exactly know what to say to her. Because, you know, I've studied Buddhism, and one of my books I wrote a chapter on Buddhism, but none of that matters in the last moments of somebody's <sighs> life. You know, you can't give an argument of why the visions of Buddha and his his analysis of the human condition of suffering, which is caused by lust, therefore, get, I mean, and his eight noble paths, I mean, none of that. Critiquing that in a person's life doesn't matter. So let the word of God speak to her heart and trust that he'll do his major work. So, I don't know. I'll see what happens. All right. Anything else? Yeah, friend. Uh, you mean what I just mentioned? I, they were, I gave her about six passages, but John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and John 6.47, he that believes has eternal life. They were the two I, I mentioned. Is that what you're asking me? What the, yeah. Thank you. Abraham Lincoln, I watched slowly as he but I never walked back. <laughs> that is great. I didn't know Lincoln said that. Is that right? Does that have the source where he said that? Um, I'm just curious. Yeah. Humanity of Abraham Lincoln by Joseph Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. That is, that's the book of Hebrews in summary. I walk slowly but never backward. <laughs> We're walking into the future with the Lord Jesus, pressing on. Don't go back. You've heard me say this before, that so many Christians go into the future with the eye on the rearview mirror and their foot on the brake. They do it. So many do that. That is not, I, when I read Paul's great statement in Philippians, I press on. Like a, he's talking like a runner in a race. I press on. I beat my body. I, I discipline myself for the prize of the high calling that's in Jesus Christ. Paul's eyes were fixed in the future, not the past. And that's one of the real challenges for, uh, for believers. They come to know Christ, they begin to experience the joy of spiritual life, but they keep going back to the old habits and old patterns. They just cannot get over them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, in terms of get out, stop it. The last chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I can hardly believe that I just uttered that sentence, because we've been in this for quite a long time, is... It's a very powerful, but this is very familiar admonitions, very familiar exhortations, very familiar, um, uh, important challenges. This is what the life of faith looks like. This is what the persevering, enduring life of faith looks like. And that's how the author is going to close out his book. Let brotherly love continue. And you're going to see this, verses 1 through 4, and that's how I've outlined it in your note packet. What does the, the life of persevering faith look like? It's a life that serves. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels. Unaware. That, that is an astonishing, almost earth-shaking statement. So the cha- challenge number one is, continue a life of brotherly love. Brotherly is phileo. We get our word Philadelphia from that. that you know, 
like back in Pennsylvania. But let that kind of caring, brotherly affection among you as believers and even unbelievers, may that continue. And what's an evidence of that? Hospitality to strangers. Now you know, I'm sure you've heard others talk about this, but in the ancient world, um, whether you were a family going to visit somebody or you're a merchant traveling or whatever it is, there weren't holiday inns or, you know, the the plush hotels or just the basic little motels where you pull your car in for 20 bucks, get a night to sleep or whatever. That didn't exist. And what did exist was really rustic. And so the author is saying, hospitality is the mark of caring for people, serving people. And he gives a reason. Because some of you, some of you, are entertaining angels. You don't even know it. Amen. You know, I I did a, a, my church, I did a series on angels. And after every service, I had people come up or I got emails from people who, during their life, something had happened where they, you know, you can't prove it. She says, I really believe that was an angel. A particular need or a crisis. And, and then a couple of instances where I, I reached out to somebody that was really in need, and then they were gone. So it's, you know, I, you can't prove anything necessarily by that. But the author is saying something to us that when you go back to the Old Testament texts, you do see Many examples of that. You go to Genesis 18, where uh, it it will tell us that three angels show up and ultimately four angels show up. And what what does Abraham do? Sarah, prepare a meal for them. And he shows them hospitality. Ancient Near Eastern hospitality. He later finds out they're angels. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon, Gideon, an angel, it's itemized as the angel of the Lord, shows up. And Gideon exercises hospitality to him. I'm just using, these are examples out of the Old Testament. The author seems to be saying, that could happen today. So it's an interesting motivation, number two. Rem- the only motivation. Pardon me? But not the primary or only I, That's correct. That's correct. It's not the only one. Oh, I better do this because that may be an angel. I mean... Yeah, most of us don't even think like that. I mean, I don't. Do you? <laughs> but, you know, it's just uh, it, hospitality in our time, 2019, is a lot different than hospitality. There is a, I'm going to down a bunny trail, but just for a moment if I could, because it's really important. There's a, a gal by the name of Rosarius Champagne Butterfield. She's written a series of books. She, her life, before she came to Jesus Christ, she was a radical feminist and a lesbian. She was a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse in the English department. Published author, very well known. She began to do a series of articles, which were essentially going to become a book, on and what she was studying was right-wing religiosity big word, but she was studying evangelical. And she's writing a book on it. So she decided to go to a promise keepers. They're not 
I don't think even Promise Keepers goes on anymore, but it was a very big thing in the 80s and 90s and so on. Well, anyway, it was for men. It was led by evangelical leaders. So she went to one, taking notes and doing her research, and she wrote in the local newspaper in Syracuse, New York, a rather scathing op-ed piece on Promise Keepers. And she didn't expect anything, but a pastor in that town wrote her a three-page letter, not criticizing her, not calling her some left-wing socialist, lesbian, radical feminist. He didn't call her any names. He just said, Dr. Butterfield, uh, Dr. Champagne, that was, Butterfield is her married name. But anyway, Dr. Champagne, I would really like you to just consider a couple of things. And so he showed it some references in Scripture and said, I'm just asking you to just consider this. You are intellectually honest. You're doing an academic work that's worthy of your work, but just consider this. And so she went and got a Bible and started reading some of these things. And then she called him up and asked him a public question. He said, listen, why don't you come over to our house for dinner? And so she writes in her book, as I crawled out of bed with my lesbian lover, I went to, I mean, that's how she writes. It's her first book. And so it started, this is how she writes, it started her on a three and a half year journey. And she said, what caused me to keep coming back and listening to this pastor talk about Jesus Christ was the hospitality of him and his wife. He said the first time, she says the first time I went in, I, I walked into the house and I saw a painting, it's a copy, but a painting of a very famous, that I really liked. And she thought, well, these people aren't weird. They like some of the same things I like. And she was making homemade bread. She said, oh, I love to make homemade bread. She's not as weird as I thought. And they were having pasta, the very dish she loved the most. And all of a sudden, you know, her, all of her stereotypes were changed. And she started this journey, and, and she would go back, they'd have dinner, et cetera. And then she did something else really radical. She decided to go to church. And she listened to him preach. He kept going back. And this is what she says in that first book. My conversion was a train wreck. And what she means by that is everything she believed to be true was proven to not be true. But she said it was three and a half years of me tugging and pulling and resisting and fighting. But what God was doing through the love and hospitality of this pastor. And so she eventually came to know Christ. And, and it's, it's, it's an incredible story, that, that volume, of the first volume that she wrote. I'm leaving an awful lot out. But she just came out with a third uh, book about six, seven months ago. And that book is on hospitality. She, you know, she came to know Christ in the 90s. And, and, you know, it's a long journey. She had to unpack everything she believed and repackage it with the Word. She's very intelligent, very smart. So as she thoroughly devoured the Bible, and she's, she then, and this, again, you've got to go forward quite a few years, but she married a pastor. She's now a pastor's wife. They've adopted five children. 
Uh, I mean, she can't have her own children. So, I mean, it's just an incredible story. And now what she's trying to do is reach the LGBTQIA community with the gospel. Not by chastising them and mocking them, but by showing them the same love and compassion she was shown through hospitality. And she's arguing, and this is one of the passages she quotes, that hospitality is still something that God can use to bring people to himself. To himself. So it's, just, it's, a, it's a fascinating, it's really a fascinating book. I have recommended it to a number of people that I know who are in the LGBTQIA community. And all I say to them is, I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not going to say anything about your life, but I would just ask you, read this book. Just read it. And some say, well, I'm not going to read it. Okay. But it's been amazing. How many have said, yes, I'll read it. I'll read the book. And so it's a tremendous example of what God's word and what the gospel can do. I mean, that is a woman who is utterly transformed, utterly transformed. It's an amazing story. Let's continue. Remember those who are in prison. A life of service involves hospitality. A life of service, remember those who are in prison, those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, meaning in, in, the, in the body of, of Christ. So it's, it's that sensitivity to, this could be other Christians who have been put in prison because of their beliefs or have been mistreated, beaten because of their faith. So, um, and it, it's hard to know exactly how we should interpret it, but that, that, is a, that is a very meaningful ministry to have. Our church is looking at developing a prison ministry. Uh, we have a couple of guys who are very, really passionate about that. Um, I, I was involved in prison ministry back in Pennsylvania and then Douglas County Prison for a number of years. And that is, it's, it's hard work, but it's also often, and I only work with men, I went into the men's prison, but the guys are at their most vulnerable point. I mean, they've not only hit bottom, many of them are looking up at the bottom. I mean, they are real, their lives are destroyed. And the Lord Jesus can really reach them in that kind of a situation. Number four, or verse four rather, continue life of service. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So, I mean, that's, I don't think any of that needs explanation, but the importance of marriage. First institution God created, it's the key institution in what he's doing. Be content, he writes in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Those two go together. It isn't money, it's the love of money. It isn't wealth, it's the love of wealth. And what's, how do you do that, to be content with what you have? Contentment is the key to staying away from that vice of loving money. Do you know the name John D. Rockefeller? He was the founder of Standard Oil in the early 1900s, late 19th century, early 20th century. And at that time, in his, if you would measure his wealth today, he was worth about $190 billion in today's money. And one time, um, one time someone asked him the question, Mr. Rockefeller, how much do you want? 
His answer, just a little bit more. Which, you know, from your perspective, my perspective, who don't can't even imagine welfare like that, you think, well, why didn't you just say I'm done now? You know, to be content with a hundred and in today's dollars, 190 billion dollars. Well, you know, the, the text is just saying contentment. And what's the key to contentment? The words of Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, for we can confidently say this, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer, well, what the martyrs used to say, you can kill my body, but you will not kill my soul. You can burn me at the stake, but I'll be with Jesus the moment I take my last breath. So the author is saying a second key quality is contentment. Not only serving others, but contentment. What's another word for contentment? The author uses the word content there in verse 5. What would be another word or two, some synonyms? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. Is that what you're going to say? Satisfaction? A peace? Yeah. Anything else? I'm sorry? Aware of your blessings and rejoicing in those blessings. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful word. Let me ask you this question. It's rhetorical. I'm not expecting you to answer it. Would you say of the United States of America we are a contented nation? It would be hard to make that argument, wouldn't it? It really would. And that, of course, all that saying is that. Without Jesus Christ, you're not going to be contented. But even with Jesus Christ, your, your focus is to be content with what God has given you, whatever that is, materially. Grateful. Health, grateful is, is a very, very significant element of contentment. It, it really is. And you know, uh, the United States is blessed. Mm. <coughs> There has never been a nation in the history of the world like the United States with the material and physical and tangible tactile blessings that we have. That's right. Thirdly, and I, I call this a stability. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. That word imitate, you could translate mimic. Mimic their faith. I want to talk a little bit about that. Remember your leaders. Now, obviously, those who spoke to you the word of God, he's talking about not your political leaders or your civil leaders. He's talking about your spiritual leaders. The leaders in your church, your, your teachers, that kind of thing. So he says, remember them. Okay, those who spoke the word of God. Why should I do that? Because consider the outcome of their way of life. 
Mehmetler. Yeah, sure. It says, remember your leaders who have taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and try to trust the Lord as they do. Good, good. How would you phrase that today? Choose good role models. I've said this to young guys many, 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 many times over the years. Choose a good role model. And, you know, that there are so many things you immediately want to eliminate, but in this context, it's, it's men who walk with God. You remember, Paul says this to Timothy twice. Imitate me, Timothy. Mimic me. Generally, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says this. Whatever you've seen, just speaking to the Philippians. Whatever you've seen, whatever you've heard in me, do it. Would you ever say that to someone? Like, you want to pull off the Christian life? Follow me around. I'll show you how to do it. I would never say that to anybody. (laughs) Never. But yet, at the same time, you get yourself in any kind of a position of spiritual leadership, that is exactly what's going to happen. People are going to watch how you live. The ESV translates that, consider the outcome of their way of life. Outcomes is a big thing today. In industry, and in education, outcomes. Outcomes-based, all that kind of stuff. The author is saying, look at their life. What do you see? What are the outcomes of their life? What do you see happening? What you see are worthwhile virtues, worthwhile standards. Mimic them. That's what Paul said. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's why he could say, mimic me because I'm mimicking Christ. And so the author is, the author is really saying something here that I think is incredibly valuable. Choose Good role models. Because every one of us has models to some degree or another. The author of the, the book of Hebrews is saying, you know, spiritual leaders who've made an impact in your life, look at the outcome. Imitate that. That's the kind of person I want to be like. I studied under two men in, in graduate school, who just in, in my seminary graduate school, that just so dramatically impacted me in that way. Because I not only saw their academic credentials and experience, but what more important, I saw their godliness. I, I saw the incredible integrity of these men. And that that was something that influenced how I wanted to how I wanted to organize my life in an academic ministry. Any questions there? What is the key stability in your life? Jesus Christ, verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now I'm going to write a word up here. It's a big word. 
This could be one of those words that the moment you leave the room today, you'll forget. <laughs> but it's a theological word. And that's, that's a word that is appropriate. It's an attribute of God. It's called immutability. God doesn't change. And so the author is saying the bedrock of your life, the foundation of your life, the rock on which you build your life, if there's anyone you should imitate, it's Jesus. Because he doesn't change. He's immutable. That's what it, immutability means you don't change. And so he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Taking you back to the quote in verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can I believe that promise? Because Jesus doesn't change. When he says something, he means it. So it's building your life on something rock solid. And if you build your life on something rock solid, verse 9, you will not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You, you will not be susceptible, as Fred mentioned at the beginning of class, by the deceitful work of Satan. You won't. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Probably referring to, you know, going back and continuing to focus on the kosher foods which you think is important for salvation. No. Don't you love that phrase? Your heart strengthened by grace. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds spiritual. What does that mean? Your heart strengthened by grace. Wow, look at the hands not go up. <laughs> First of all, what, when, when the Bible speaks of the heart, what does it mean? It doesn't mean this organ is pumping my blood. What does it mean? Yeah, the, the center of you, the inner center of who you are, center of your will. Okay, your heart strengthened by grace. What's grace? Unmerited favor that God shows. God deals with us always on the basis of grace, not our works. And my heart is strengthened by his grace. Jesus did it all for me. In terms of my salvation, I don't do anything. In terms of my eternal destiny, it's all dependent on Jesus keeping his promises. If God deals with me in grace, in the past he's dealt with me in grace, he continues to deal with me in grace, will he deal with me in grace in the future? Yes, when he brings me back to life in his resurrection. The last great resurrection. Yes. So that strengthens me. It's a, it's, it's, to embellish a little bit, grace is the way God always deals with us. That he deals with on grace means I am not earning, performing, meriting anything. He's paid it all. That strengthens me. That 
that encourages and strengthens me. It gives me the desire to persevere and endure and hang in there. Because his grace also means he's going to keep promises that he's made to me. So I'm strengthened. That's why I love that phrase. A heart strengthened by grace. Not human performance stuff like kosher foods, which you think earns God's favor. But nonetheless, he says to them, then, if I can pick up with verse 10, and maybe maybe I'll, I'll read verse 9 as well. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for your heart, the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, that last half of that verse should inform the clear meaning of what he's trying to argue. The foods would be the kosher foods of the law, the kosher foods of the Old Covenant. And because, remember, these those who are arguing, we've got to keep all of this, including the kosher foods, he says that is not what strengthens you. It is the grace of God that strengthens your heart. So don't be led astray by these false teachings. Now, we sort of covered that last week. And look at verse 10. This is an interesting play on words here. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That's figurative language. Tent that have no right to eat would be the tabernacle, the temple, you know, and you know all of that, which has been fulfilled, set aside, is no longer relevant. Our altar, now in the old covenant, the altar was that the, the, the large altar right outside the tabernacle or temple where the sacrifices were offered. But he's saying our altar is superior to that. Now here, you've you got to work out the figure of speech. Who... Or what is the altar of the new covenant? Jesus. You follow that? So the altar is Jesus. <laughs> so I hope that makes sense. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice of sin, burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you see what he's doing in 11 and 12? He's comparing the old to the new. See that? Now, that not, verse 11 and 12 is not new if you've been here in the study of Hebrews. It's just a review of it. But he's stipulating once again the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice to the sacrifice of the old covenant. Okay, now this is a review question. And a review question means everyone should get this. What is the primary difference between the sacrifice of the Old Covenant and the sacrifice of the New Covenant? Once for all. Once for all. Thank you. That's exactly it. That key phrase which keeps popping up through the book of Hebrews. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. And so he's just he's reminding them of that. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So he is reminding them to follow Jesus means you may bear some of his reproach. Particularly if you're a Jew in the first century 
who have now accepted Jesus as your Messiah, but many of your other Jewish friends and relatives and maybe parents and brothers and sisters haven't. So you're going to bear reproach. But that's all right. Follow Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he bared. See what he's saying? It's very practical. Again, for them in the first century. Yeah, please. Is there any, and this is probably reading way too much, in it, is there any, any nuance there or suggestion that like kind of de-emphasizing the temple or the... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, de-emphasizing the temple. Yes, and of course, because Jesus was crucified outside the wall, I mean, not the wall today, but the wall back then at that time. So, yeah, it is. It's it's rendering, um, let's use a strong term, rendering irrelevant the necessity of the temple. It isn't needed anymore. So, this is to bear witness... Of, of his sacrifice, right? In our daily, daily lives. So that we have an answer yeah. for those who wonder and ask. And when it's appropriate, we present this same message that once and for all, Jesus Christ. Exactly. And as, I mean, he's, he's drawing that parallel as Jesus bore reproach outside the wall, even in his crucifixion. So we should be following him and being willing to bear reproach as we stand for him, as we represent him, and so on. Now, he's almost done, but he, again, he's using some language that he's used throughout the book. Verse 14, for here, where? With Jesus, outside the camp, the temple's no longer relevant. It's no longer We have a lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Excuse me, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, again, that's, that's hard, but you have to go back to, like, chapter 11, where the author used that a couple of times. The city to which he is referring here at the end, the city that is to come, is what? It's heaven. Like, you know, the, the people had faith that he cites over and over again in chapter 11. Their focus was always not only in the temporal things, but on eternity. The city that is to come, that is heaven. And that, that motivates us. Uh, it, you know, it should motivate us because it, the lasting city isn't outside the wall of Jerusalem. The lasting eternal city is the eternal Jerusalem, i.e. the residence of God, i.e. heaven, i.e. part of the new heaven and new earth, all the language that's developed throughout the scriptures. And so let's, let's put it as simply as we can. Our focus is on eternal things. Our focus is on our eternal home. Our focus is on heaven. Our focus is on the eternal significance of everything we do for the glory of God. And that eternal focus is what takes you back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, when he defines faith. The evidence, the tactile, objective evidence of things we hope for. What is that? It's that Jesus is coming back for us as he promised. We're going to be joining us with him in his kingdom. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be in eternity with him. Where? In heaven. The new Jerusalem. I mean, all of those things that are talked about in scripture. And I, I know you all have known this and perhaps experienced it. As I'm getting older, more and more that eternal home means much more to me than it did when I was just came to know Christ. And I watched my parents, you know, in the last uh, almost 19 months now, my father passed away, Peggy's mom died, my mom died. 
And so in, in all three of their lives, I saw that. What was most important to them, because they were all sick, I mean, they're in their 90s, they, you, know, you know, it just happens to our bodies. And their focus was, I remember my mom and dad both said, and Peggy's mom too, but my mom and dad both said, I just want to go home. And that's heaven. And yet, as we get older, we start to recognize again what the author's saying here, our real home is heaven. When I preached my mom's funeral service, I said three things about mom. I said, one, her journey is over. Number two, she went home. And number three, she woke up in the presence of Jesus. She had fallen, because the metaphor of the Bible is you, you sleep, a sleep of death. You wake up and you're in Jesus' arms, so to speak. So, I mean, there are, these are grand truths, and that's what the author is reminding us. And so he continues then through him, meaning Jesus, let us continually, where's my text? To continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now, you see what he's doing? All the sacrifices of the old order, they're fulfilled, they're gone. Now what's our sacrifice look like? A sacrifice of praise. <coughs> that is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name, that's praise. You sing your worship courses, worship hymns, your testimony, your declaration. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, using that language of the Old Testament. Sacrifices, the praise and acknowledgement of his name, doing righteous good in his name, and sharing with others. That's pleasing to God. This is echoes of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, which is a reasonable service. That's the same kind of thought. And then, obey your leaders, submit to them. For they keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's fascinating because he's almost done, and he'll have the benediction in a moment. And when he's talking about leaders here in verse 10, he's talking about the spiritual leaders of your church, the spiritual leaders who, who keep watch over you. The, uh, he talks about this in chapter, uh, chapter um, 11, or chapter 10, excuse me, about the importance of the spiritual leaders, of the elders, and, and watching and listening and following them, mimicking them, he even says. And the same thing here. And then uh, he just asks us to pray. Pray for him. Pray for us. We're sure we have a clear conscience designed to act honorably in all things. All right. Again, none of, none of the concluding thoughts here are new thoughts, but they're wrapped around the language of the Old Covenant, which has been fulfilled, and the language of the New Covenant. Is there, a priest, is there a priest in the New Covenant? Yes, Jesus is our high priest. Are there sacrifices in the New Covenant? Yes, sacrifice of praise, of worship, of doing the things that honor and represent God. Uh, do you submit to your leadership in the Old Covenant? Yes, the king and all of that. In the new, to your spiritual leaders in church. So it's it's just same, in a sense, same duties and obligations, different covenant that have different nuances to it. So it's it's quite wonderful. Yes, Jim. Sixteen. Sixteen. Do good to show others with such sacrifices God is pleased. What is, what's the implication of God is pleased? Is that, 
Excellent, excellent question. That's a great question. The, the, the term he chooses here, Jim, corresponds to the Old Testament. It's a sweet aroma in the nostrils of the Lord. Now, God doesn't have nostrils. It's an anthropomorphism. But it is, it is a sweet, pleasurable, joy-filled thing by our God to see us doing that. Not meriting. You're not earning but it's pleasing. It's that sweet savor offering in the Old Covenant. It's that same word. I think it's the latter, Jim. I don't think he's talking here about rewards. That is an important part of New Testament teaching. But I don't think that's what he means here. It's just... God is so, like that sweet savor offering of the Old Testament. God is so pleased. It's, it's a sweet savor smell in his nostril. That's how the Old Testament talks about that. It's hard for us because it's giving human characteristics to God. But it's, it's so pleasing to the Lord. Oh, I, I like to put it this way. It's a father saying, oh, look at how my children are obeying what I want them to do. They're reflecting me. Oh, that is so... Every father delights to see that in his children. That's the image that we have here. That's a great question, because it's right out of that Old Testament sweet savor offering language. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus says this, and it therefore... Don't you want to hear Jesus say to you, well done? Has nothing to do with reward. Nothing. It's just, he says to you, well done. You're a good steward. And that's, I mean, I personally, I want to hear the Lord say that. I really do. So, I mean, it's that kind of an idea. It's not reward. That is a teaching of the New Testament. That's not what I think he's talking about here. Fred. So, the, the pleasing to God would, would be progression of the believers through sanctification towards love? Absolutely. As we grow, it, it is so pleasing to the Lord to see us. Because remember, it tells us several times in the New Testament, he is transforming us into the image of his son. And as that process is ongoing, that is so pleasing to the Lord. Just like your children, you know, some of you have little, like Andrew, have little kids running around, but those are a little older, as you watch your kids grow and, get into, and you see them making decisions, you see them pleasing the Lord, that's pleasing to us. It's not you're patting yourself here. Well, I did a great job. That, that's not so much that. You're just, you're seeing your kids. Your kids are really owning. And, and it's, it's reflecting that ownership that you taught them, that you modeled before them with all your mistakes and all your shortcomings. You see, that's how God is. Remember, I told you this before. J.R. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, in his chapter on God as Father, the first sentence of that chapter is, the greatest privilege of the believer is to call God Father. I love that sentence. I, that, that, is, that resonates with me. Because that's the relationship we have with God now. He is our Father. And as this text is, he delight, he's pleased when he sees us growing. And to put, Fred put the spin on it in sanctification. We're growing in that. Woody. I compare that, the flip side of that is to how... Uh, he would correct us when we had done something wrong or, mm-hmm. or guided us mm-hmm. out of a certain exactly. behavior. Mm-hmm. And 
he was displeased with that. Whereas once we accept <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, that he's pleased. And even as we are growing with him as part of the sanctification, he still disciplines us, just like a, a good father disciplines his children. Right. What, what about the person who says, I don't know that I'm up to this situation. I want to. I, I know he would like me to, but I don't know, for example, that I can say or witness to this maybe a family member, maybe a friend, how, how, do we, how do we deal with that? How do we answer that? Well, um, to me, um, there's so many ways I can go. You are and you will be. <laughs> you well, <laughs> because the one thing God is not pleased with, and the one thing he really won't let us stay there is to just stay there and tread water in our spiritual life. He does not want us to go back. He wants us to go forward, which is another major theme of the book of Hebrews. So if you don't have the courage or the desire to do all that the author is talking about in these last verses, God God is going to help you get the courage and get you get the desire to do this. And in, in, in light of what Woody shared even, and sometimes he has to discipline us, like you, you take a steer with that poking to get that steer going. God will do that. I don't mean to sound mean. That is what God does. God will prod us to move forward. He doesn't want us going backward. He doesn't want us just treading water. He wants us going forward. He wants us growing in our faith, in our in our in our dependence on him, in our in our in our spiritual growth where we're we're seeing him develop the fruit of his spirit in our lives. This is a very encouraging verse though because it is. Sometimes it, it, you know, scripture tells us, no, we grow weary in doing good, mm-hmm. but sometimes you do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Does anybody care? Yeah. Anybody care that's right. Yeah. But God does. It's just, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I should have focused on a little more. That pleasing is that sweet savor offering, that sweet aroma, how pleasing it is for the Lord to see his children doing the things that honor him. That's, that should motivate us. I want to put, you know, that's what, again, that's the language of, of Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is the language of that. We, is there sacrifice in the new covenant? Yeah. We are the sacrifice. We present our body, the living sacrifice. Actually, the text says a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. And it's, uh, what an encouragement that is, that we present it to the Lord. I'm yours. My uh, one of my kids right now is just going through a lot of changes, and just she's just saying, "I'm I'm watching the Lord take my strengths and my gifts and using them in a way I never ever ever dreamed of." That's a good thing to see that. It's unsettling for it. She's uncomfortable with it. Uh, 
I'm at the point in my life where I don't like change at all. I don't like change. I hate change. <laughs> I don't want anything to change. But, you know, whereas young adult kids and so on. But I hope, I really do, I hope it was a blessing to study Hebrews. It's taken us a long time. We've been in this many, many, many months. If I had any authority in your life, which I don't, I would insist that you write a thought paper of 3,000 words in which you summarize the argument of the book of Hebrews. How does the book of Hebrews present Jesus? Because it's unique. It's not like how Paul presents Jesus. It's, It's presenting Jesus through the grid of the Old Covenant. How he fulfills and renders inoperative the Old Covenant all wrapped around the rubrics of the new covenant. And as we commented, a couple of you said it, in just in that sacrifice, the old covenant, the sacrificial system was ongoing, constant, Jesus, it's once for all. So, are we done with Hebrews? I'm going to pray, then we'll get out of here, all right? Father, we're grateful for the reminder using that contrast of the covenants that we're a part of the new covenant, those incredible statements about our future, heavenly Jerusalem, where the worship of angels is everywhere, as well as the, the grand truths that, that we, we are saved by your grace. We are strengthened by your grace. And let us be men that very practically are representing you well, that we do show hospitality, you do care for people who are in need, We are interested in maintaining the strengths of our marriages. We're also committed to not being passionate for the love of money, but being content with who you are and what you've given us, to be good stewards. And Lord, I just thank you for that contentment, which is such a life-changing, radical character, character trait. And let us trust in your immutability, that you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever that there's nothing, nothing which will cause you to change your path that you have for us or to cause you not to fulfill the promises you've made to us. We can trust you in that. So, Lord, I thank you for these men as we go our separate ways. Dismiss us with your blessing. Help us in all the areas of of our lives as we just do life with all its struggles and all the difficulties that are just a part of living in a broken world. But in that, we have the hope of the gospel, We have the transformation that we're experiencing in Christ, and we have the joy and the promise that you've made to us about what our future looks like. We long for you to return for us. We look forward to that, but until then, we want to be faithful stewards who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.